Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. We are discussing the downfall of the Ottoman Empire and the events of World War I, which ultimately led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East in the way that it is today. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick thank you to Hamza Malik for his generous donation to the Islamic History Podcast. I do acknowledge it, and may Allah reward you for your support. May Allah reward all of the Patreon subscribers and all the supporters and all the listeners to the Islamic History Podcast. So let's get into it. A quick recap of where we are so far. Right now, we have already discussed the events of the, uh, the Gallipoli campaign, or also known as the British invasion of the Dardanelles, in which the British had to ultimately retreat from the Gallipoli Peninsula. But we're going to go back a little bit. We're going to go back in that, in that time period, which is late 1915, and look at some of the events that happened during this period, some of the political events. We discussed the military events at uh, Gallipoli, but now let's talk about some of the political events that were going on. So we're going to go back to late 1915, like October, November 1915. At this point in time, the British are stuck in a stalemate at Gallipoli, but they are acknowledging that they're going to have to most likely withdraw and that victory at Gallipoli is probably unlikely. So they're preparing to withdraw from Gallipoli. And this is seen as a British defeat, a great British loss. And Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, who was the British Secretary of War, and Winston Churchill, who was in charge of the British Navy, they were blamed for the whole fiasco at Gallipoli. So Kitchener, he begins to lose some of his luster. He steps down from some of the authority. He still held held the title of Secretary of War, but he didn't have as much direct contact with the actual mechanics of the war, particularly in Europe. Uh, remember, before this, he had been uh, regarded as a British war hero, but now he's seen as a bit of a, a bit of a loser right now. So, having lost a lot of his influence over the direction of the war, especially in Europe. He decides to focus more on what's going on in the Middle East and his pet project of trying to create a um, an Arab caliphate headed by none other uh, none other than Sharif Hussein, um, full title Sharif Hussein Ibn Ali, who was the Emir of Mecca or the governor of Mecca for the Ottoman Empire. However, Sharif Hussein, we're going to call him Sharif Hussein. Sharif, as those of you who are long term long-time listeners to the Islamic History Podcast know that the word Sharif can mean a nobleman. So this is kind of like maybe Sir Hussein, something like that in English. Sharif Hussein, he is the Emir of Mecca, the governor of Mecca, and he works for the Ottoman Empire. However, the Ottoman Parliament is dominated by a political group known as the Young Turks, and these are mostly Turkish nationalists. And they're not really happy with Sharif Hussein, and so they intend to get rid of him. And as we discussed in the previous episode, Sharif Hussein learned that the Young Turks planned to remove him from his position after the war was over. And once he learned this, this kind of pushed Sharif Hussein to work more closely with the British and to begin collaborating with them to overthrow the Ottoman Empire. However, before he learned that the Young Turks were going to get rid of him, he was actually on the fence about supporting um, the British idea, really Lord Kitchener's idea of creating this Arab caliphate. 
Much of these, the negotiation between Sharif Hussein and the uh, British, particularly the British in Egypt, is being facilitated by an Arab spy named Al Faruqi. Al Faruqi, whom there's not really that much information about, Al Faruqi had convinced um, the British officials in Egypt to support this idea of Arab independence, which would supposedly lead to an Arab caliphate. This uh, spy named Al Faruqi, he claimed to represent the various Arab secret societies in Damascus, and at the same time, he also claimed to speak for Sharif Hussein. But as we mentioned in the previous episode, neither side really knew who this guy was. He just claimed to be carrying messages from one side to the other. So Sharif Hussein thought that he was speaking for the uh, the British officials in Egypt, and the British officials in Egypt thought that Al-Faruqi was speaking for Sharif Hussein and these various um, Arab secret societies that were supposed to be in Damascus. And the primary person who's heading all of this information up in, the primary guy, British guy on the ground is a man named Gilbert Clayton. And Gilbert Clayton is the head of British intelligence in Egypt. And Gilbert Clayton believed Al-Faruqi when he said he represented the Arab secret societies, when he said he represented Sharif Hussein, when he said that the Arabs, Arabs were ready to rise up in revolution against the Ottoman Empire. And right around the time that Gilbert Clayton, the head of intelligence for British Egypt, was was communicating with Sharif Hussein through Al Faruqi, Mark Sykes, whom we mentioned before, Mark Sykes, he's a British bureaucrat. He works for the War Office. He's on his way back to London after a long trip through Britain's eastern territories and lots of different eastern nations. So he's coming back to Europe and he stops in Cairo. And when he stops in Cairo, he meets with British intelligence, primarily with Gilbert Clayton. And so that's where we're going to pick up. But before we get into Mark Sykes and his discussion with Gilbert Clayton, let's look at the, let's take a, a step back and look at the overall picture of where these different factions are. Right now, the British have made too many promises and there are too many demands from so many different groups and Britain just cannot possibly meet them all. They have obligations all over the place. First, the British have obligations to their military allies, primarily France and Russia, who, along with Britain, are involved in this devastating war, the most devastating war up to that point of time in human history. They're involved in this devastating war against Germany, Austro-Hungary Empire, uh, Austro-Hungary Kingdom, and the Ottoman Empire. And so Britain's first obligations are to France and Russia, and they got to make sure that those two are happy before all. But at the same time, Britain also has lots of agreements and connections and alliances with several different Arab allies. Sharif Hussein, who is the Ottoman, once again, Ottoman Emir of Mecca or governor of Mecca, he's just one guy who they're in communication with. But there are other Arab leaders in Arabia who have no ties and who aren't compromised by any loyalty to the Ottoman Empire. Lots of other small Arab groups in the Arabian Peninsula that the British have alliances and agreements with. One of these people happens to be Abdulaziz ibn Saud, who, of course, would be the founder of the Saudi monarchy of the current Saudi Arabian uh, nation. And... Uh, 
Abdulaziz ibn Saud and his uh, Saudi group, they are mortal enemies of Sharif Hussein. So Britain is over here making agreements with a, with a person whom they already have an agreement with his mortal blood enemy. But we'll get to that later on. So we also, uh, the British also have obligations to other parts of the British government. I don't know how to put this, but the British Empire is so large, the different factions within the government, within this empire, actually have enough power to kind of operate independently. That's how big it is. So you have, of course, the folks in London, the politicians in London who kind of run everything, but then you still have British Egypt, and they have a lot of influence because they're right there close to the situation as far as fighting or uh, going up against the Ottomans. And then you also have British India. While British India is not close geographically to the Middle East as compared to British Egypt, British India is the crown jewel of England, of, of the British, of the United Kingdom. And so British India, just by the its its influence and its wealth and its power, its population, its natural resources, it just naturally commands a large weight in any decision by the British government. And so all these different groups have all their different desires and claims and British promises and British obligations. And so the different British officials their plan to deal with all this is to be as vague as possible, particularly with their promises and obligations to the Arabs. So let's go through and discuss what the primary players really wanted. Okay, so we mentioned how one of the um, primary British obligations were to their own military allies. That included France and Russia. The French, they really wanted to control the coast of Syria and Lebanon, what is now modern-day Syria and Lebanon. The French really wanted to control all of Syria, Syria's interior too, but they didn't really have the resources to have direct control over all of Syria. So what the French wanted was just the coast of Syria and Lebanon, and then they would exert influence over the interior of Syria through local puppet leaders. The French, for some reason, well, we'll, we'll discuss that reason in a second. The French believed that Syria was vital to their national security and their um, economic security. The French kind of believed that Syria, Palestine, the Levant, all of this was one country. So we have them divided into like four or five different countries now, but the French believed all of this was one country. And when they said Palestine, when we say Palestine in this region, I just want to be clear that when we say Palestine right now, we're talking about the modern area that covers Israel, Palestine, and Lebanon. So just to make that clear. So they believe Syria and Palestine made up the Levant and that all of this was one country and that all of this had a special connection to France. You see, the French imperialists, they believe that France had helped to shape Syria's culture. They were basing this upon the fact that the Crusaders, yes, the Crusaders had conquered Jerusalem and parts of Syria and Turkey over a thousand years ago, over a thousand years before World War One, because of this conquest that barely lasted a century, the French believed that they had a natural right to Syria. The French also believed and claimed 
that the Arabs living in Syria wanted the French to rule over them. They they were putting forth the claim that the Arabs of Syria did not want to be under the Ottomans, did not want to be under the French, and wanted to be under, I'm sorry, did not want to be under the Ottomans, did not want to be under the British, but really just wanted to be under the French. But this is a complete lie. The only Arabs in Syria who were who wanted the French at all were the small Maronite Christians along the Syrian coast. And the reason why they preferred French occupation was that they were supported and sponsored by the French government. Yes, secular France was supporting the Maronite Christians in Syria, in coastal Syria, which is now modern-day Lebanon. So that's what the French really wanted. They wanted the the coast of of uh, Syria, and then they want direct control of the coast of Syria, and then influence over in the interior of Syria, that's Damascus and Aleppo, and we'll get into that in a few moments. So, we know what the French wanted. The British had their own desires as well. First and foremost, the British wanted the Arabs to support them and help them win the war. And the British they told the Arabs, particularly Sharif Hussein, they promised the Arabs that they wanted to, they would give them independence in exchange for their support, in exchange for them revolting against the Ottomans. However, the British never, never intended to give the Arabs, Sharif Hussein or any of the other Arabs that they were dealing with, full independence. The British fully intended to dominate or directly influence any future Arab state that came from the partition of the Ottoman Empire. It was just a matter of which British faction would actually control which parts of this future Arab state. We're going to discuss that now. First, let's look at the different British factions. First, there's London. London is, of course, the capital of the United Kingdom. It is uh, the main folks, the main point of where all of their politicians are, and this is the focal point of the war. This great war that is the World War One. Um, so, in London, the politicians they are mostly focused on winning the war, and they are especially focused on what's happening in Europe. While they're concerned about what's going on in the Middle East, in London, they are primarily focused on what's happening in Europe. That's right outside their doorstep, and it's their sons who are getting killed by the hundreds of thousands, okay, maybe just tens of thousands in this war. And so in London, they're really focused on trying winning this war. And so in in this respect, the politicians in London, they had to stay on good terms with their military allies, as we mentioned, particularly France and Russia. And in that respect, they had to honor the claims of France and Russia. And as we mentioned, France really wanted that coastal Syria, that coastal region of Syria, and England did not want to violate that at all. And Russia, for their part, they really wanted Istanbul. As we mentioned in an earlier episode, Russia had always has always wanted a warm water port. This is something that has always eluded them. And so in any future partition of the Ottoman Empire, the Russians wanted to make sure that they got Istanbul, which gave them access to the Dardanelles Strait and gave them 
a warm water port. But the politicians in London had another conflict of interest. Even though they had to stay on good terms with their allies, France and Russia, at the same time, they didn't want to give them too much either. They had been involved in the great game that had cost lots of lives and had been going on for almost 100 years with Russia. They're always in the quiet rivalry with France. And so even though they, the tension between France and England had died down by this time, it wasn't no, nothing like it was in the early parts of the 19th century during the Napoleonic era. But still, you know, England, or I shouldn't say England, the British didn't want either one of these nations getting too much control in the Middle East either. And in fact, London wanted France to act as a buffer between British-controlled territory and Russian-controlled territory in the Middle East. The Russian-controlled territory would presumably be, if they ever won, there would be Armenia, Constantinople, the Caucasus region, that region that's on the western side of the Middle East, of the Middle East, northwestern side of the Middle East, so to speak, whereas the French would act as a buffer if they could kind of have Syria, and then that will keep the Russians separated from what Britain really wanted, which were the um, what's now considered Iraq and also um, the Suez Canal, Egypt, and parts of Palestine. So that's what London wanted. They wanted to kind of dance this line between appeasing their allies, but also not giving them too much. Then you have British Egypt. British Egypt, based in Cairo, of course, they wanted more control over the Middle East. They especially wanted control over Syria's interior. They're, and by we, we already mentioned the French wanted the coastal part of Syria, and Britain was willing to concede that to the French. But there's the interior of Syria, which is basically the, these major cities, which, which we'll discuss in a, in a few moments. Britain wanted to make sure that they had control of that. Well, British Egypt, I should say, wanted to make sure they had control of that part. They didn't want to give France too much control. They didn't want them having too much control over Syria. Another thing that British Egypt also wanted was a Mediterranean port along the Syrian coast. They had the Suez Canal. Of course, they had Egypt and Alexandria, but they didn't have any any ports along the Syrian coast that ran between what's now the... Um, Sinai Peninsula and southern Turkey. And they wanted one port along this region so that they could build a railroad from the Mediterranean Sea straight to Iraq. Their eyesights, or they were set on really trying to get this town called Alexandretta in southern Turkey. Nowadays, this town is called Iskenderun, and it has a port right on the Mediterranean Sea. And so British Egypt was hoping that they could negotiate a way to get control of this Syrian coastal town. And then in their future plans, British Egypt wanted to build a railroad from this port to Iraq. Now, of course, what's in Iraq? There is the Mediterranean. I'm sorry, there is the Mesopotamia area, which includes primarily Baghdad, which is a major city and was once the capital of the um, Abbasid, Abbasid Caliphate. And then there's also Basra. Basra was a big deal because Basra was right there on the Persian Gulf. And from the Persian Gulf, he had a direct connection by sea to British India. British Egypt had 
a, a bit of an advantage here over London because British Egypt had the closest relationship with Sharif Hussein, the Emir of Mecca. And that's simply because proximity. They were right there. The uh, being in Egypt it had a uh, easier easier opportunities to communicate with Sharif Hussein, and so British Egypt had that advantage over London. British Egypt was doing most of the communication with um, Sharif Hussein uh, to begin with. So, and also bear in mind that the British Secretary of War, uh, Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, even though his popularity was was going downhill at this time, he was still technically the Secretary of War, and he came from this uh, British Egypt office, and so. He kind of he had close ties in this region, and so he kind of had a lot of influence over the direction of the conversation, the negotiations in British Egypt. Now, British Egypt knew that Sharif Hussein didn't want to give up any parts of Syria, and he didn't want to give up any parts of Palestine. The British were the British in Egypt. That is, they were willing to give up to give the the French the coastal part of Syria, but they didn't want to give them the interior parts of Syria. And so British Egypt was in a bit of a conflict here. So they pretended to support Sharif Hussein's claim to the inner parts of Syria. And they were trying to negotiate with him to relinquish his claims on the coastal parts of Syria. The thing is that British Egypt, they fully intended to use Sharif Hussein and all of the other Arabs that supported them as puppets. They intended for an inner Syria, and we'll we'll discuss the differences between inner Syria and coastal Syria in a moment. British Egypt definitely intended to use the Arabs as puppets and use them to exert their influence over inner Syria and make this inner Syria with part of British Egypt's overall circle of influence or radar of influence. And so in doing so, when they negotiated with Sharif Hussein, British Egypt deliberately used vague terminology as they were discussing and negotiating what parts would go to Sharif Hussein if he chose to support the British and rising up against the Ottomans. And we'll get into those discussions later on also. And the final British faction that had um, some say in this whole thing was British India. As I mentioned, British India, even though it wasn't really close to where all the action was, its importance to the British economy and the British prestige gave them a disproportionate control over the conversation. British India primarily wanted Iraq. They wanted Baghdad and Basra, the Mesopotamian area, area of the Arabian Peninsula. They did not like Lord Kitchener's idea of trying to bring the Arabs into this thing. They doubted the Arabs would be of any help in the war effort, and they thought Kitchener's idea to create, or his plan to create an Arab caliphate was completely ridiculous. And so British India, they weren't really in the conversation as far as the negotiation, negotiations with Sharif Hussein, but they had made it clear that with any partition of, of um, the Ottoman Empire, they made it clear that they wanted to have Baghdad and Basra. So we know what the French wanted. We know what the different British factions wanted. Now, what did Sharif Hussein want? Sharif Hussein, the governor of Mecca, 
currently an employee of the Ottoman Empire, but secretly plotting to revolt and rebel against the Ottoman Empire. Sharif Hussein wanted an Arab kingdom. He wanted an Arab kingdom that would include most of Arabia, and in his mind, most of Arabia included all of Syria, all of Palestine, and all of Iraq. The only part he was willing to uh, concede and give up to the British was the port of Aden, that's the English pronunciation, the port of Aden in Arabic, which is in southern Yemen. At this point in time, Aden was controlled by the British. That's the only part he didn't have any demand over. But the rest of the Arabian Peninsula, he expected all of that to come to him if he supported the British in overthrowing or rebelling against the Ottomans. However, he was also in a tight spot. See, he had, as you mentioned, he had already learned that the young Turks planned to get rid of him as soon as the war was over. And so he really only had two choices. Either he can sit there and wait for the, the Ottomans to get rid of him, really the young Turks to get rid of him and, and fire him from his position, or he could go ahead and join up with the British. At least in his mind, he felt he had only two choices. I'm certain there was another option he could have taken. He decided to go with option B and join up with the British. We didn't get to that point yet, but that's where he's going. So in these negotiations, uh, Sharif Hussein, he was adamant on keeping the French out of Syria. I don't know if how true or how much of this suspicion and dislike of the French was connected to the Crusades. But most of the Arabs in this region wanted nothing to do with France. They they didn't want, they would rather, they would per, first of all, they'd rather be under the Ottomans than either the British or the French. They would rather be ruled by Muslims than by non-Muslims. And so they preferred to be under the Ottomans rather than be, being dominated by the British or the French, but they didn't know the British were planning on double-crossing them later on. They didn't know that at this time. So, if they couldn't get independence, of course, they would have preferred the Ottomans. However, if they had to choose between the British and the French, they would have chose the British. The Arabs of this region, I don't want to say hated, but I think I could say they hated the French. And so Sharif Hussein, he rejected any French claims to any parts of Syria. He didn't want to give them the interior. He didn't want to give them the coast. He didn't want to give them nothing in Syria. The Arab Syrians, for the most part, except for those that small community of Maronite Christians, they pretty much hated the French. And Sharif Hussein made it clear that his future state, this future Arab state that the British were promising him, were promising him, it must include Aleppo and Beirut, which is of course in Lebanon. Right now, we've been discussing the different parts of Syria, uh, this this inner Syria and coastal Syria. Well, Syria is, at this point in time at least, not talking about, we're not talking about the modern Republic of Syria. We're talking about the region that was known as Syria back then, and which in, in Arabic would have been referred to as Asham, or some, it may also be called the Levant. This region was divided into four broad categories. I'm being very broad here, because it's a huge territory and I can't really go through it all, but this is what most of the negotiations surrounded upon. 
So there's a coastal plain, of course. That's a strip of land that ran along the Mediterranean Sea. There are lots of very, there are several, not lots, there are several commercially important ports, seaports in this region. And so anybody who had any control in this region wanted to make sure they had access to some sort of ports along the Mediterranean Sea. Everybody wanted that. The British wanted that. The French wanted it. And of course, Sharif Hussein, he expected to have something like that also. Everybody wanted ports along the Mediterranean Sea. That was important for commercial, commercial and economic purposes. Okay, so you have the coastal plain along the western coast of Syria. Then you have this western plateau. As you move in from the beach or the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, you go deeper into Syria. The land begins to rise. It forms a bit of a plateau. This is the western side of the Jabal Nusayriya mountain range. This mountain range that We'll, go, we'll talk about the mountain range in a moment, actually. I don't want to get ahead of myself. But this region, this western plateau, it gets lots of wind and moisture coming in from the Mediterranean Sea. And so this western plateau was the most fertile part of Syria. So this region, the coastal plains up to the western plateau, this is what the French really wanted. This is the best part of Syria. This is where the ports were and where the fertile regions were. This is what the French wanted. So when you get past the western plateau, you get you then get to the Jabal Nusaydiya mountain range. This mountain range is not a very long mountain range, but it's very important. Um, as we mentioned, these mountains they helped capture the moisture that made the western plateau very fertile. This mountain range began in what is now modern day southern Turkey, and it ran south, roughly parallel to the coast of Syria, all the way down to roughly around where Homs in Syria is. That's kind of where the mountain range kind of ends. So that's the, the third region in Syria. The fourth region on the other side of that mountain range was the eastern plateau. And the eastern plateau was roughly the opposite of the western plateau. Where the western plateau got the winds and the moisture from the Mediterranean Sea was all fertile and everything. The eastern plateau was mostly hot and it was dry because it was getting hit by the, by the winds from the desert that's further to the east. However, this eastern plateau was probably the most populated part of Syria because this is where most of Syria's inner largest cities began, places like Damascus and Aleppo. This is where all the largest cities were, this eastern plateau region. And then once you get past the eastern plateau and the major cities, you then still going out east, heading out east again, you then get to the Hamad Desert. The Hamad Desert is large, inhospitable, dry, barren desert that really covers most of modern day Syria. So now you get these regions, you understand hopefully the regions of Syria that everybody is arguing about. Coastal plains, western plateau, the mountain range, the eastern plateau, and then, and then the desert. Nobody was arguing over the desert. So now that we have the setup of the situation, we will begin discussing the actual machinations and the negotiations between the British and the Arabs, particularly Sharif Hussein, and also the British and the European allies. But all that's going to come in the next episode, inshallah. And of course, all of this is leading up to the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement, but we're not quite there yet. For now, stay tuned for a short clip from our series on Salahuddin al-Ayubi, and we will pick this up again in the next episode. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.
Just a brief understanding of what Jerusalem means to the three major monotheistic faiths of the region, and we have uh, we've already done a history of Jerusalem of sorts during the regular Islamic history podcast when we discussed the beginnings of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Uh, we went through a very there wasn't a di- exact history of Jerusalem. We discussed Jerusalem extensively, where if you listen to that, you should have a fairly good understanding of how Jerusalem has passed through so many different hands over the centuries. So rather than go through the history of Jerusalem, we'll instead briefly mention what Jerusalem means to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. To Jews, obviously, it is their holy city. It is similar to the way Mecca is to Muslims. Jerusalem is the, it was the location, and it well, was the location of Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple doesn't exist anymore. Just the, the Western Wall is all that remains right now. But Jerusalem was the capital of the unified kingdom of Israel that is spoken of during biblical times. It was the capital founded by the prophet Dawood or David in English. And so, of course, it has lots of historical and spiritual significance to to the Jewish people. To Christians as well, Jerusalem is also important. This is where Jesus alayhi salam, taught and preached. And this is also according to Christian beliefs, where Christians believe that Jesus was crucified and where he was also resurrected. For Muslims, Jerusalem has a, it is not, it is a considered one of the three holy cities in Islam, but it is not at the level of Mecca or Medina, but it is still important both religiously and historically. Religiously, Jerusalem is where Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, where he ascended to to the heavens during his night journey in Arabic that is called Al Isra wal Mi'raj. Well, let me let me let me change that. Al Isra is the journey, which is man. Didn't mean to go into this this uh, direction, but Al Isra wal Mi'raj is is actually two different events. We combine them into one uh, as Muslims journey. There is Al Isra is the night journey. That is the journey the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam took from uh, Mecca to Jerusalem. And once in Jer- Jerusalem, he then did he then ascended to the heavens, and that ascension is what is known as Al Mi'raj. So Al Isra is the night travel, Al Mi'raj is the ascension, but he ascended to heaven from Jerusalem. And so that is the religious significance to Muslims. Historically, it's more or less historically important because it was uh, peacefully conquered by Umar ibn Khattab, and it has been in Muslim hands probably longer than any other single religious group. <laughs> 